listen. What do you hear? I'll tell you what you hear. Nothing. It's 1.10 p.m. on Thursday, March 26th, and you hear nothing. It's supposed to be opening day of the 2020 baseball season. Under normal circumstances right about now, you'd be hearing the clamor of positive energy, a rising anticipation in the crowd around you like it's Times Square on New Year's Eve and you're counting down till midnight. Under normal circumstances, I'd be with my friend Jim in his seats at City Field, Section 323, just up the third baseline. We'd be part of that thrum, waiting for Jacob deGrom to deliver the season's first pitch to the leadoff hitter of the Washington Nationals, the two-time Cy Young Award winner against the defending World Series champs. We've been waiting for that pitch for six months. We're still waiting. These are not normal circumstances. Which is why today, opening day, my favorite holiday, I am not at City Field. Neither is Jim. He's home having a catch in his backyard with his son, who's home from college. No one is where they thought they'd be today. We're living through what New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has called the pause, which sounds more like a Stephen King novel than the shelter-in-place mandate that it is. And life in the pause has no baseball. Welcome to sports in the time of Corona. Which is why I'm starting the debut episode of my new podcast, not at City Field, but here, at a local ball field. My wife and I walked here with our dog, maintaining proper social distancing all the way, of course, because at 1.10 p.m. on opening day, you're supposed to be at a ball field. Because opening day is bigger than just a baseball game. It's a day of possibility. A day when your optimism is intact and still justifiable. It's like Joe DiMaggio once said, looking forward to a birthday party when you're a kid. You think something wonderful is going to happen. Here in the pause, right now, we kind of need to think something wonderful is going to happen. We could use a little hope in this time of uncertainty. As Mets fans, we know about such things. Since the 1973 pennant race, we've lived by the words of the great philosopher Tug McGraw, who said, You gotta believe. And so we believe, and we hope, and we wait. Because today is opening day in the pause, and there is no baseball. And there's nothing else we can do. Welcome to Out of Left Field, a new podcast focused not on headlines and highlights, but on digging a little deeper into the heart of the sports experience, on sharing stories unexpected and unexplored, the kind you won't find in box scores or standings and which won't necessarily affect your fantasy lineup or move betting lines. It can be argued that the middle of a pandemic is not the right time to be talking about sports. I would argue that it may be exactly the right time. We're still listening to music, still watching movies, still binge-watching series after series, maybe more now than ever. Right now, we are all craving the distraction from the everyday that sports provides, the escape from the sadness and the madness that surround us. Why we care so much about sports is the story for another day, and one we will pursue here in the coming weeks. But the fact that we do care is reason enough for us to be talking about sports today. And so we begin our first journey out of left field where sports stories are supposed to begin, on opening day, but on the oddest of opening days, when nothing in the baseball world actually opens. On Thursday, March 12th, Major League Baseball pulled the plug on the start of the 2020 season. 
Preseason games scheduled for that day were called off, and the first two weeks of the regular season were postponed indefinitely. As far as unthinkable decisions go, this was an easy call. The NBA abruptly halted its season the night before. Then on Thursday the 12th, the NHL shut down, and the NCAA called off its cornerstone event, the men's basketball tournament, three days before Selection Sunday, as well as all other winter sports championships and all spring sports seasons in their entirety. Baseball had no choice, so the national pastime hit the pause button too with, quote, the hope of resuming normal operations as soon as possible, according to the official press release. March 26th came and went without a de-bearded Garrett Cole making his first start for the Yankees, without Mookie Betts taking his first at-bats in Dodger Blue, without anyone in the Astros lineup getting thrown at. But it's not just the baseball that didn't happen, it's the entire ballpark experience that we missed. No sport wears its traditions quite so proudly or publicly as baseball, and no day on the baseball calendar comes draped in more pomp and pageantry than opening day. In Cincinnati, the official home of opening day baseball, this meant that life for the local fans went on without the Finley Market Parade for the first time in a hundred years. Marty Brenneman, the longtime voice of the Reds, was to serve as Grand Marshal of this year's parade, the 101st in its history, which as always would have started at the market, proceeded down Race Street, turned left at 5th, and culminated at the Taft, just a few blocks from the Great American Ballpark, which this year sat empty, marking the Great American Interruption. No baseball meant that Roger Owens would not be serving concessions at a Dodgers home game for the first time since baseball arrived in California. Opening day was supposed to have been uh, March 26th, and that's the first time that I have not worked an opening day uh, with the Dodgers in 63 years. This, this year will be, uh, if, if, if we can get the season started, my 63rd season in a row that I have been pitching peanuts at L.A. Dodger baseball games. You heard that right. 63 seasons. The Dodgers left Brooklyn after the 1957 baseball season and played their first four West Coast summers in the Los Angeles Coliseum, which has always been a football-first facility, known more as the longtime home of the USC Trojans, twice the home field for the Los Angeles Rams, and the site of the first Super Bowl. I, I come from a very humble, poor background, and we were living in South Central L.A., and the high school that I was going to was only about three blocks away from the L.A. Coliseum, and I was a baseball pitcher on the team in high school, and I quit the team just to go over to the Coliseum and sell soda pop. I wasn't able to get peanuts right off the bat and uh, sell soda pop to help uh, our family uh, to bring grocery money home to help out. But they played four years in the L.A. Coliseum, and, and it took four years to build Dodger Stadium. And then in 1962, they opened up at Dodger Stadium, so all the food uh, concession workers made the transfer from the Coliseum over to Dodger Stadium. When the Dodgers made their move, so too did Roger Owens, from Soda Pop to Peanuts. He set up shop in the loge level at Dodger Stadium, working from home plate down the left field line, serving peanuts to fans in the odd-numbered sections in the 100 level behind the Dodgers' dugout. Over the course of the next six decades, roughly 5,250 games, Roger has become perhaps the most famous concessioneer in sports, a legume-lugging legend known far and wide as the Peanut Man. 
And while the Dodgers have always been known for their great pitching, from Koufax to Kershaw, it can be argued that no pitcher in team history had a deeper repertoire of trick pitches than their venerable vending machine up in his own personal peanut gallery. Under the leg, behind the back, uh, just a forward over-the-shoulder pass for some of the really, really long-distance shots. And a lot of times people will throw the peanuts back to me if I don't give them that behind-the-back uh, pitch that I'm, I'm noted for. That's my signature uh, t- uh, pitch out there at the ballpark where I'm, in fact, a lot of times when people will buy two bags, I will, I'm able to throw two bags behind my back, have them split in midair, and come down to uh, two different people at the same time. And you thought Magic Johnson brought Showtime to L.A. Owens joked that he's always worked for Peanuts, but Peanuts worked for Roger, too. Over the years, he made four appearances on The Tonight Show, where he once took Johnny Carson out into the audience to teach him the fine art of flinging peanuts to the crowd. He did the late 70s talk show circuit, the Mike Douglas show in Philadelphia, the Merv Griffin show in L.A. He even met Chuck Barris at a Dodgers game once and was invited to be a judge on the gong show. The peanut man was big time. He worked a Monday night football game at Texas Stadium, selling a personal best 2,400 bags of peanuts despite running out of product in the third quarter. He worked a string of inauguration night parties for perhaps the only living person more closely associated with peanuts than he is. President Jimmy Carter. He even did a guest spot on Super Night at the Super Bowl, a variety show on CBS held the night before Super Bowl XI, which was played in Pasadena, during which the peanut man was serenaded by Sammy Davis Jr. And all of a sudden he starts singing the Candyman can, but he turns all the words around as I come in swinging these bags of peanuts to everybody in the audience is the peanut man can. And, and the peanuts back then were only like 25 cents. So who can take a bag of peanuts at 25 and throw, throw a strike while the other collects the dough? The peanut man can. It's been a glorious and rewarding 62 years and counting for the peanut man. But it hasn't always been easy. Gone are the days of hustling to sell eight or 900 bags of peanuts a game. Roger now has to fight through back pain and occasional flare-ups of arthritis, He's watched many of his fellow vendors go all in for a money grab, switching from snack foods to beer when a local ordinance finally allowed in-seat beer selling at Dodger Stadium way back in August of 2018, if you can believe it. And, of course, there's the technology. People now are, I'd say, 50%, maybe even 60% of the people that come to a game, they're only bringing plastic, credit cards, debit cards. And uh, the peanut vendors, uh, we uh, really don't carry the uh, uh, portable handheld credit card machine to swipe cards. The beer guys do because, you know, their product uh, is a lot more. it's, It's pretty expensive for one can of beer. None of it. Not the wear and tear. Not the temptation of selling big ticket adult beverages. Not the plastic. Not even the growing trend of nut free nights at ballparks has kept the peanut man from his appointed rounds. Instead, it's taken a global pandemic that has left baseball stadiums across the country empty, looking like a trail of discarded peanut husks. But whenever life and baseball return to Dodger Stadium, so too will the peanut man. They're not even sure if we're going to have any kind of a season this year, Major League Baseball, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed, but boy... 
Right now we're at a critical stage. For those of you scoring at home, the Dodgers actually did win back on opening day. They beat the Giants 10-3, at least in a world according to Stratomatic, where the entire 2020 Major League season is being played as scheduled. You can follow the simulated season at stratomatic.com. That's strat-o-matic for as long as we're forced to live without the real thing. And it's not just at the major league level where we're waiting to play ball. More on that after the break. Since we're just getting acquainted, here's something you should probably know about me. I am an enthusiastic advocator of things that I loved. I love being the guy who recommends a great restaurant to a friend or suggests a movie or a book or a new podcast that they should check out. I'll never go to bat for something unless I feel strongly in favor of it, which is why you'll never hear me promoting traffic or tomatoes or wearing long pants. So when I encourage you to check out Everripe plant-based superfood smoothies, you can trust that it's because I love them myself. Even before we were all stockpiling for an extended stay-at-home spring, we were loading up on Everripe. There are a ton of reasons I could roll through for you. They're delicious, they're incredibly easy to make, they're shelf-stable, and all five flavors are dairy-free, gluten-free, preservative-free, even shipping-free in the continental U.S. But that's not the selling point for me. See, I have two teenagers who, on school days, both actual and virtual, have breakfast at the same time. And when you have teenage siblings who can agree on what they want for breakfast, you give it to them. And if it takes 90 seconds from start to finish to prepare it for them, you feel a gratitude that is as pure and natural as the freeze-dried ingredients that brought harmony to breakfast time. If you live in the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest, you can find Everripe smoothies in your local Walmart. If not, you can order them through Amazon or on their website, everripe.com, that's E-V-E-R-I-P-E.com, where you could check out their blog, which shares all kinds of great ideas for physical and mental wellness. And if you order from everripe.com, you can enter the code LEFTFIELD20, all caps, all one word, LEFTFIELD20, and get a 15% discount on your purchase. Tim Carroll was already two for five on the day when he came to the plate in the top of the ninth inning, with two out and two on, the potential tying run on third, the go-ahead run on second. The Saints had scored four in the eighth and trailed 9-8 when Carroll worked the count full. It was just after 2.30 in the afternoon of March 11th, and Siena College was this close to completing a comeback against Appalachian State at Smith Stadium down in Boone, North Carolina. The 2020 college baseball season wasn't yet a month old, but it already had been a long haul for Siena. Time seems to move slower when you're in a slump, and the Saints had lost their first 16 games of the season so you can understand why this felt like a potential turning point moment. The start of conference play was 10 days away, and a rally here might have given the Saints a much-needed boost, maybe even enough to generate a little positive momentum going into the part of the schedule that mattered most. Carroll went down swinging on that 3-2 pitch, and Siena lost, falling to 0-17. They were disappointed, but not discouraged. That strange mix of emotions that you get from one of those we'll get him next time, boys, near misses. Except in this case, nobody knows when next time will be. You know, it was really weird ending our season the way it did all over the country. Everybody, I think, coaches in the same boat. And, you know, you get to a, you know, your preseason 
games that we played and, uh, you know, we see some progress and then you're ready to come up into your conference and then everything halts. Everything halts. That's Tony Rossi. He's been the head coach of the Siena Saints since 1970. No coach in Division I baseball history has coached one team as long as Rossi has been running the show at Siena. Back in his first spring in the Saints dugout, NASA launched its Apollo 13 mission. The AFL and NFL merger became finalized, and the Beatles broke up. Nothing in his 51 seasons as the head coach of the Saints prepared Rossi for the Thanos snap that ended the 2020 college baseball season. After uh, App State, you know, uh, I decided to leave a day earlier. We left right after our games on that day and got into uh, Athens, Ohio, where we had a series at Ohio U on, on Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So we got into Athens on, uh, on Thursday, and uh, well, actually Wednesday night, and then Thursday we had a workout in the morning at the college, a lifting program, and, and then at 4 o'clock we were slated to uh, uh, you know, work out on our field for the Friday series start, and uh, I got a call from Coach uh, saying that uh, their college uh, decided to cancel everything. So uh, we never really got to the field that Thursday for the workout or the series Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so we had to turn around and come back. So that was pretty much how it ended for us. And, and you know, at that point, obviously, you have to you have to tell the team. And as you said, you have, you know, I think five or six seniors on your roster. How how did you deliver that message to those guys? Well, you know, I, there was a whole bunch of people that were calling me. So it, it, I had got them all in a room in a hotel before we were leaving. And, uh, and I think it might have gotten out a little bit on, on uh, Twitter. Uh, some of the guys had said that a couple guys had known, but uh, only a few minutes earlier. So I got them in the room, and uh, that's where I, I basically told everything, what the scenario was and what was happening. And it hit them pretty hard. I mean, it hit the team really hard. And, um, you know, the coaching staff assistants hit them real hard and myself. I spoke to Rossi from his home in Florida where he went to join his wife as soon as Siena closed its campus and shifted to a distance learning environment. He told me that he can't remember spending a spring without baseball since he first picked up a glove as a kid. Not when he was the lacrosse coach at Siena in the late 60s before getting the baseball gig. Not even during the polio epidemic that ravaged the U.S. from 1949 to 1954, back when Rossi was still playing Little League ball. But he did experience something vaguely similar at Siena back in 1989. That February, there was an outbreak of measles on the upstate New York campus. Siena's men's basketball team wound up winning the North Atlantic Conference Championship, earning the automatic bid to the NCAA tournament in a conference tournament played at the empty Hartford Civic Center. No fans were allowed in the building. So it was uh, kind of a ghost town as well as like it is now. Um, and I do remember the game. Obviously, couldn't go to it, but I did see videos of it and so forth. Uh, it was similar to this, believe it or not, but obviously not on a large scale, uh, the way things are happening here over the world. And so Grossi is spending this spring in Florida, 1,400 miles south of where he has spent every single spring for the last half century. He's in regular touch with his players and assistant coaches over text and email. He's getting an early start on recruiting the high school class of 2021, and he's even working out next year's schedule. When you're 0-17 and the rest of your season is PPD'd, the old Brooklyn Dodgers mantra, wait till next year, takes on a whole new meaning. But at least Rossi got to start his season. Lindsey Nupp was not so lucky. I mean, you know, the biggest question we're getting right now is, when is opening day? Because everyone wants to be there for opening day because it's our first game. 
Of all the people who live and work in the world of baseball, from T-ball on up to the show, there may be no one who was looking forward to opening day 2020 more than Lindsay Knupp. She moved from her native eastern Pennsylvania to Madison, Alabama, with a very specific mission, to help a transplanted minor league team make a major splash in its new hometown. Officially, Nup is the Vice President of Marketing, Promotions, and Entertainment for the brand new Rocket City Trash Pandas, formerly the Mobile Bay Bears. But her bio on the team's website tells the real story. It calls her the team's Vice President of Fun. I have the best job of anyone in the ballpark, in my opinion, because I love the game entertainment. I love the promotions. I love the on-field activities, getting the kids out there, just the feeling that you're feeling the excitement of the, and the energy of the fans when they're there and you get to make people happy. You are making their day. They're coming to the ballpark to let their stresses go and to have a good time and to be with their friends or their family or whoever, their coworkers, and you're providing this unbelievable experience for them. And no one in minor league baseball puts on a show like Lindsay Nupp. She spent a dozen seasons providing those unbelievable experiences for the fans of the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, helping the organization earn the 2019 Larry McPhail Award given to innovative, promotions-minded teams in the spirit of the pioneer who brought night games, batting helmets, and airplane travel to baseball. Nupp's resume includes five Golden Bobblehead Awards, the Oscars of minor league baseball promotions, for best non-game day event, best in-game promotion, best theme night, best digital campaign, and best overall promotion or event. Talk about your five-tool player. The woman whose idea it was for the Iron Pigs to sell baseball caps with just the image of a piece of bacon across the front was ready to launch all kinds of new promotions in the Rocket City until everything that was already in the works was grounded. Even before opening day, like we we had meet the team, our first ever meet the team dinner scheduled. We'd had um, investor dinners and VIP dinners scheduled for you know our top clients and our partners, and all of those things have now been delayed and kind of on hold until we can continue to plan them again. Um, the struggle for for me from a promotional standpoint is we had all these great things scheduled for opening day from a you know, anthem performer to a first pitch to all the ceremonies to the flyover to, um, you know, all of the things that we wanted to do for the first time that we could really take time to plan all of those things just kind of that we've been so excited for and planning for are not happening. So that's where it's a little disheartening, but everyone is still, what I think is going to happen is once we do plan whatever when we announce whatever that opening day is the rest of the season is going to sell out and it's going to be booming it's going to be a party nup finds a little comfort in knowing that all of her peers among the 160 teams in minor league baseball are facing the same exasperating challenge whether they're trying to settle a team into a new market like she is or rebranding a team with a new name like the missoula paddleheads or just hoping to extend the longest streak of home sellouts in all of american sports like the dayton dragons that's right the Dragons have sold out 1,385 consecutive games. They broke the record of 814 games held by the Portland Trailblazers way back in 2011. And she knows that delaying the home opener beyond April 15th, when the Trash Pandas were scheduled to play the Mississippi Braves at Toyota Field, will give her and her staff the time to attend to some finishing touches that might not have been 
entirely ready for the original opening day. The concession stands, for instance, were still in the final stages of being set up when I spoke with her, and the control room and press box were not yet fully operational when the decision came down to postpone the start of the Trash Panda's inaugural season. Still being forced to sit by and wait is not something that sits well with Lindsay Nupp. The countdown to liftoff in Rocket City is on hold, and the VP of Fun has big plans. What keeps me positive and what I think keeps our staff positive is knowing that when it happens and it is going to happen, this will pass, this will, there will be a time where we're back to normal again and people will want to come. We know it. We know people want to come out. We know they're going to be there. We know they're going to show up and it's going to be even bigger than what I think we anticipated initially. In our house, we can identify the different seasons by smell. Winter smells like hockey equipment. Fall smells like middle school boy. Spring smells like wet dog. Because here in the Northeast, it rains. A lot. Each of the last three years, March lasted like 11 weeks. And because we have a dog who likes to roll around on the front lawn when it's wet. Especially right after a visit to the groomer. Can someone explain that to me? Anyway, we've not found anything that really gets the hockey smell out of the car, but we have found the answer to the wet dog smell. The Soggy Doggy Super Chamois, which is as effective a canine cleaning product as it is fun to say. It's basically a towel made out of noodley fibers, also fun to say, which trap dirt and debris before your dog can slop them all over your house. Except it's five times more absorbent than regular towels, and the convenient easy-on Hand pockets make drying a wiggly wet dog possible, which is a necessity in these crazy times. Nobody wants to shelter in place in a place that smells like wet dog. Our Golden actually loves the massage from those noodly fibers, so she never resists me drying her paws or rubbing her belly before letting her back into the house. Maybe that's why she rolls in the puddles in the first place. I should mention that even though this is my debut episode, this is not the first time I've been sponsored by Soggy Doggy. I spent four seasons coaching Team Soggy Doggy in our local Little League, and I promise you, nobody ever had more fun than the doggies. You can order the Soggy Doggy Super Chamois, or their dog beds, or doormats, or the Soggy Doggy Slobber Swabber, you know, to clean the dog drool off your car windows, at SoggyDoggyDoormat.com. And if you enter the code LEFTFIELD15, you'll get a 15% discount on any purchase. On Saturday, March 7th, I got a text from my friend Andrew. It was a picture he took on his phone of a baseball roster, the team he and his co-coach had just selected in the 2020 Larchmont Mamaroneck Little League Majors Plus Draft. His team was stacked. And he'd never say it, but we both knew that his lineup would likely be able to do what he and I were never quite able to accomplish in our five seasons of coaching Little League together, win a championship. We were the number one seed in our half of the bracket, entering one postseason, but we lost an elimination game one step away from the championship series. The next spring, we lost the best of three championship series with the tying runs on base in the last inning of Game 3. Last season, we were bounced from the double elimination tournament in extra innings in Round 3. And that was the last baseball game I may ever coach. I knew coming into this spring that I would not be behind a Little League bench for the first time in 11 years. That's a lot of years of coming home for late weeknight dinners, 
feet caked in infield dust, the scorebook in hand still open to the page that told in baseball code the story of that night's game. My son aged out of traditional Little League after last season, and he decided not to continue on to the seniors division, opting to try rowing this spring instead. My daughter, after two seasons of softball seniors, also decided to hang up her glove so she could focus on musical theater pursuits and preparing for finals and regents exams. This was always going to be a Little League-free spring for me, and I wasn't sure how I was going to handle it. But I had no idea that everyone else in the world would be on the sidelines, too. We have uh, about 80 to 85 countries at any, any given time uh, that are playing Little League. That's Lance Van Auken, vice president of Little League International and the executive director of the World of Little League Museum in Williamsport, PA. We have leagues in every state. There are about 7,000 separate local Little League programs around the world uh, and something around 2.2, 2.3 million kids. More than 2 million kids will miss all or most of a cornerstone childhood experience, the chance to play Little League ball. Lance noted when we spoke that leagues in Australia were able to complete their seasons, and there were leagues in Florida, at least, that had their opening days back in mid-February before everything everywhere was canceled until May 11th at the earliest. This is not the first time that Little League has had to deal with interruptions or delays to the start of rec baseball season, sometimes due to late spring snowfalls in the north or during the recovery along the Gulf Coast in the spring after Hurricane Katrina, but they have never dealt with anything on this scale. We've had, you know, natural disasters that have hit certain areas. Last year um, in Puerto Rico, you know, um, we have thousands of kids playing uh, Little League in Puerto Rico, and they just got, you know, hammered with the uh, hurricanes. And, um, you know, on, on a smaller level, that was the case for them. They, they had their, their season wiped out. And, um, you know, we were able to go in and help them um, help them put together as much as we could um, their seasons. And, uh, you know, we've had other places where there's been hurricanes that have hit. Uh, Houston a number of years ago was, was hard hit. Uh, things like that, on, like I said, on a regional or a local level we've had, but um, nothing, I don't think anything um, nationally comes to mind. There was one time, though, Lance recalls, when the entire Little League playing world slammed to a stop all at once though it was a much smaller world at the time. My wife and I wrote a book on the history of Little League, and there was one game in Williamsport at the original Little League um, in August of 1945, and they, uh, they actually have in the scorebook that the, uh, um, they stopped the game because it was at the moment that they got the news of the surrender of the um, uh, Japanese. Uh, so they just didn't think it was that because that was obviously the end of World War II because, you know, the Germany had already surrendered. So um, it was a big deal. So they, they did stop that game. So that was one stoppage in Little League because that was the only Little League in existence at the time. Do you, do you remember the, the, the state of the game where, you know, what the situation was, what the, what the game situation was? I, I certainly don't. Um, but, uh, you know, we, we have the scorebook in, in the museum, and I think they stopped it in the fourth inning. Um, and, it, and it says right on the scorebook, you know, game postponed because of Japanese surrender. So. The end of a world war, devastating hurricanes. Baseball season may have been interrupted before, but it always returned. 
Now we're faced with a rampant virus and a million unanswerable questions about when baseball can resume, about when it will be safe for all of us to come together again, for kids to take the field in their sponsored t-shirts and dirt-stained baseball pants that will never get completely clean no matter how many times you wash them, for parents to set up camp in metal bleachers or in portable chairs along the baselines, for a coach to huddle off to the side with a young ball player, consoling him after a strikeout or complimenting her for throwing the ball to the right base or for shaking off a bad hop to the shins, for an umpire to call out those words we all long to hear, play ball. For Little Leagues, that it's such a big deal when they have their opening day. And, um, you know, I can remember mine, and, and I've heard other people talk about it, where they, you know, kids will sleep with their glove or sleep with their, their uniform on because it, it meant so much to them. Um, but that's not going to go away. It's just, a, like I said, it's just a matter of time between now and when that happens again. I think everybody knows in their hearts that um, – we're going to get back onto baseball fields again. It's just a, a question of how many days between now and, and that, that new opening day uh, are left. It will happen again. We have to believe that. I may not get the chance to coach Little League again, and Andrew might never get the chance to lead this loaded squad out onto the field, but there will be baseball again. We will again play ball, just as we always have. For now, though, I like to think that we are all where we need to be, even if it's not where we want to be. Really, it's the place every ball player at every level of baseball is trying to be. Safe at home. This debut episode of the Out of Left Field podcast was researched, written, inexpertly edited, and hosted by me, David Siegerman. Because what else did I have to do in the early days of the pause? But like everything else out there in the sports world, it's been a total team effort. So thanks to Jessica Berenblatt of JB Art House for designing the cover art, and to my brother-in-law, George Hockbruckner, for contributing the music. Check out his album, Celtic Afroacoustic Electric, which is actually a little easier to spell than his last name when you're doing your search. And to Scott Holmes' music for the opening theme, Hot Shot. I want to thank Josh Sippy, my podcasting mentor from the Gotham Writers Workshop, and my kids, who stayed focused on their homework and quiet while I was recording this in my bedroom closet. I'll be back with another out-of-left-field episode in a couple of weeks, and stay tuned later this spring when we begin our first serialized story, which we're thinking of calling... Who cares? The quest to understand what it means to be a sports fan in 2020 America. For now, I hope that you and your family, wherever you are, stay safe and well and sane. And when you feel the walls start closing in on you, try to remember these hopeful words of the great Rogers Hornsby, who once said, People ask me what I do in the winter when there's no baseball. I'll tell you what I do. I stare out the window and wait for spring. Happy staring, everybody.